and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about four decades of animosity between Iran and the United States and how the two countries have been wrestling with the ghosts of history. My guest today is John Limbert, a retired American diplomat and a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Iran. He's one of the last American diplomats to serve in Iran and was later taken hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. John, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Happy to be here. Great to have you. John, you recently wrote an opinion piece in the Los Angeles Times. It's titled, What Trump Has in Common with the Ayatollah Khomeini. And you essentially compare the attack on the U.S. Capitol in January to the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Talk about this piece. Explain the similarities that you saw between these two events and then the the similarities that you're explaining between these two leaders uh, during these events, President Trump here in Washington and Ayatollah Khomeini back in Tehran in 1979. Uh, You know, Nagar, when I I saw that, uh, I just had flashbacks to... Uh, uh, back to 1979, uh, to 42 years ago. Um, it was chilling, really, and because the similarities were the similarities were amazing. I mean, think of, think about it. Here you have a a so-called in both cases, you have a leader of a country inciting people, stirring them up against an imagined enemy. And then when they go and invade a sacrosanct inviolable space, in one case an embassy, in the other case the U.S. Capitol, not only does that, not only has that leader incited them, but he's encouraged them and endorses the action. Uh, the other thing was, of course, that in both cases, uh, the facility, the people at the security was inadequate and the, secure, the people responsible uh, were unprepared. And in the Tehran case, the people responsible for our security never responded. They never sent us any help. They would never send us any help. Uh, in the Washington case, they, eventually they responded, but it took much too, it much too long. And it was just very, very fortunate that a greater tragedy was, uh, was avoided. Uh, so watching that, as I said, the similarities were similarities were very strong. Someone, uh, a friend of mine who read that article wrote me and said, ah, but did the people who come in, came into the U.S. Embassy, uh, did they break things? And I, my response was, uh, look, the people who came into the Capitol, they broke windows, they broke door, they broke doors. Uh, people who came into the U.S. Embassy, uh, they broke hearts and eventually they broke a country. It is the anniversary of the 1979 revolution. And right now, and it's also a very interesting time for Tehran and Washington. A new administration is at the White House who is trying to re-engage with Iran after four years of maximum pressure. And um, we see interesting signals coming from the Biden team. Let's start from today and then we can move back all the way to the 1979 revolution. But right now we 
know that there's a interest or a will in both capitals in Tehran and Washington to re-engage, to restart diplomacy and essentially return to the nuclear deal. But we also know, or you of all people know, that it's not very easy. You have experienced this as a deputy assistant secretary at the State Department. You've written books about it, and you've also served in Iran and went through very interesting and and troubling times. Talk about what you think is the road ahead for this new administration and how the Biden team can and should approach this new episode of diplomacy with Tehran? Well, you know, Nagar, uh, if you look back over the last 40 years, and it, it is appropriate, we're talking on the, uh, now it's 41, 42 years since 42 the revolution. 42 years uh, since the since the revolution. And it's been a very tough time uh, and a very tough relationship. I, for one, didn't think the estrate would be it would be as difficult as it uh, as it's turned out to be, uh, and that the road would be as rough as it has. And it's been, of course, particularly it's been difficult for the U.S. Uh, to to understand and manage a relationship like this. But it's a, the the real victims of it all um, are our uh, Iranian friends. Uh, and mm-hmm. Iranian friends and family. I mean, if you think of uh, what our Iranian friends have gone through for the last 42 years, repression, brutality, war, economic crises, exile, living in diaspora, all of these, all of these things, it's really been uh, a very difficult and very tragic time. Mm-hmm. So thinking of what we've seen, and as you said, it's been a rough road, and I consider you an optimist as as well as a realist, and you have a very interesting overview of this four-decade relationship or this rough road that's been, but we know that the administration, the current administration, wants to re-enter the JCPOA as a first step to diplomacy with Iran, but then they also want to take a a tougher task of follow-on uh, negotiations on other issues, as they say, the missile program, Iran's regional presence, and then eventually maybe even domestic policies and human rights. What is your outlook on doing that, the follow-on negotiations? How successful do you think something like that would be, or how should they take that road to eventually get to success? Uh, well, let's, let's go to first principles. Uh, first of all, uh, from the for, you know looking from the American point of view, uh, whatever <clears throat> we have done in the last uh, uh, last forty two years uh, w- with the with Iran and with the Islamic Republic um, obviously hasn't worked. I mean, I mean, you, you can call it all kinds of things. You've called, we've talked about dual containment. We've talked about maximum pressure. We've talked about uh, goodwill for good goodwill begets goodwill. Um, whatever it is, uh, the Islamic Republic remains um, hostile, and it remains a very difficult uh, relationship. So obviously, whatever whatever we've done hasn't changed the basic hostility and the basic difficulty. So from a U.S. point of view, you know, Iran remains a difficult relationship. The question, and then changing that into something uh, more productive that 
fulfills the national interest, the interests of the United States and the interests of Iran, mutual, the, mutual, the, the interests of both sides, um, has proved to be very difficult. A colleague of mine once said, he said, when, when, in, in, in the case of Iran, uh, whatever you want to do is going to be harder than you think. It's going to take longer than you think. Uh, and whenever you think you're actually making progress, uh, someone or something is going to come along and mess it up. And that's certainly been the case over the last 40, 40, 42 years. So yes, um, I mean, the new, the new administration obviously wants to change um, a policy that is that obvious to anyone hasn't worked. Uh, um, hasn't worked. How how it will do? How go about doing that? What kind of success it's going to have? Uh, that's really hard to judge at this time. But I think you said it isn't going to be easy, and that's a good starting place. Exactly, and I think you make a very interesting point when you say it hasn't worked, meaning that something different should be tried. And I think this is a problem that we've seen from both sides that each side. Um, F holds the other one fully responsible for the failure of whatever policy they've used um, against each other that hasn't worked over the years. And now I want to go back to your book. You've written a book about this. It's called Negotiating with Iran, Wrestling the Ghosts of History. I want you to talk about these ghosts of history because you talk about ghosts who are present in any negotiations or basically in the room between Iran and the U.S. And, and you, you explain this very well and how both sides should be aware of this presence. But from an American viewpoint, who are these ghosts and how should an American negotiator be aware of their presence? Well, I can tell you, uh, perhaps get, rather than getting into a discussion of ghosts, I can tell you... <laughs> I can tell you what happens um, when you don't pay any attention to them. I mean, when they're in the room and they they come back to haunt you. And the greatest example that I know of and affected me personally, of course, was when in October of 1979, when President Carter, uh, against his own better judgment, uh, decided uh, to allow the Shah to come to the United States for medical treatment. And as they were considering considering that step, uh, there was a ghost in the room, and the, one of the ghosts, or there were perhaps many ghosts in the room, but the biggest ghost in the room, of course, was the ghost of 1953, and the uh, American-backed coup uh, against uh, Premier Mossadegh, Prime Minister Mossadegh, and the National Front and the National Front government, and that was that was haunting the discussions. But by all accounts, and for everything I have read and have seen, and people I have talked to. Um, people in the room um, ignored that ghost or were not aware of its presence. But ghosts are like that. Ghosts, if you ignore them, they're still there. Uh, and of course, they made their decision around October 20th of 1979. Uh, and uh, uh, two weeks later, uh, that ghost came to haunt us uh, right at the U.S. Uh, right at the U.S. Embassy in, uh, in Tehran. And we know what you know, we know its power. Uh, among other things, it destroyed Jimmy Carter's presidency. It destroyed any chance of a reasonably normal U.S.-Iranian relationship, and of course, it went a long way to sending the to sending Iran on this road to uh, 
to, bruta- to brutality and economic and political collapse. Mm-hmm. And how much do you think that that whole episode, the hostage crisis, played a role in the following four decades of U.S.-Iran standoff? Because a lot of people see that basically as the defining moment and the defining event. But do you think that that event is basically the central um, problem or the hiccup for that set the next uh, four decades? How important do you see the role of that episode? I don't know if it's the defining event, but it's certainly it is certainly one of them. Um, and w- what it is is each side when, when 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 each side approaches some kind of engagement, uh, it carries with it um, a list of grievances in its pocket, uh, and it uses these grievances, of course, to to remind the uh, to remind the other uh, of its past. Misdeed. So you did this in 1953. You did this in 1979. You did this at another time. You did that at uh, 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 at another time. Um, and it, it's this focus on past grievances that have really kept this estrangement and hostility uh, hostility going. Oh, I mean, there are other other issues as well. And part of the problem. Uh, is that not not so much that these grievances exist, uh, but that both neither side is really willing to acknowledge them uh, that even such a thing happened. I mean, look at on the Iranian side. Uh, every, every year there are the commemorations on the what is it, thirteenth of Aban, fourth of November in Tehran, uh, pretending. Uh, that what happened was in fact a good thing when it was actually disgraceful. Um, mm-hmm. Or the other attitude, which is perhaps even worse, um, is to simply pretend that this whole thing happened, uh, to quote the Star Wars series, um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away uh, and is of no relevance anymore. Uh, of course, the U.S. Uh, had the same problem with the events of 1953. I mean, it took about 50, 50 years uh, before anyone would acknowledge uh, that this had happened, that the U.S. played a role in it. That Secretary Albright did that in, I think, 1999 or 2000. Uh, President Obama did came later. It took 50 years. It took a, uh, it took much longer for uh, the U.S. government to release the documents from that period. Uh, so it's this refusal to acknowledge the history, refusal to acknowledge uh, reality uh, that have really, really kept the sides from uh, dealing with each other uh, in a way that would be of mutual benefit and would further the interests of both sides. They seem to be what they what they know how to do is to bash each other, to beat each other over the head, to recite lists of grievances. But what they don't know how to do is to find a better way. Mm -hmm. And um, we know that over the past four decades, and there has been some opportunities, many of them turned into missed opportunities. There was this one instance where during President Obama, eventually the two sides came together during the nuclear negotiations and many of us thought it would be a miracle even or impossible. But 
arrived at an agreement. Why do you think that episode succeeded? What happened that made that one instance? Well, many people don't like that deal or don't consider it a great one, but nevertheless, it was an agreement. How do you think that came about? And basically, what should the the road ahead look like taking the experience from that success? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, back in 2009 and 2010, um, at the beginning of the first Obama administration, and, and that's when I came out of retirement and rejoined the, rejoined the Department of State to work on Iran issues, um, it was very clear how difficult the, the whole relationship would be um, and how deep uh, how deep the mistrust was after this long period of, of hostility. So then when President Obama came out and uh, made his offers and his openings to Iran back, uh, starting really with his inaugural address in January 2009 and, and then looking at his uh, Nowruz message of March of 2000, 2009, um, the, it seemed to me that the Iranian side was wrong-footed. They were caught off guard. They didn't know how to respond. You know, they knew how mm -hmm. to respond to the uh, threats and the, the accusations of a George W. Bush. They'd been doing that things like that for 40, that was easy. 40 years they'd been doing that. But now they had, they were facing something different and something more difficult. And it took them about, uh, it took about four years. Uh, I mean, those, that, that year that I was in the department, essentially those, those negotiations were going nowhere. And we, we were spinning, we were, we were spinning our wheels. And I think the assumption, uh, in me, the first assumption on the Iranian side, because this was the assumption that they had always had, uh, that there has to be some trick here. Why are they doing this? Uh, because we had both, we had fallen into this pattern of assuming the worst about the other side and that all the other side wants to do is to trick us, to deceive us, to deprive us of our rights, to do all of these other, uh, to do all of these other things. And it took about four years, if you look at it, it took about four years and a change of administration in Tehran, uh, in Tehran before we started making any progress. Mm -hmm. And so eventually we know the change of administration came in Tehran. You're talking about when you were in the State Department, the years after also another very important event in Iran, the 2009 presidential election, the Green Movement and the post-election protests and all of those events, and then the change of administration in Tehran with Hassan Rouhani, and then eventually basically public negotiations kicking off and coming to an agreement about two years later. What do you think made that success? What were the ingredients or was it the circumstances or what did the two sides do that eventually brought them to to a final point, at least on one issue? That's a really good question, Nagar. I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure. Um, I mean back in two back in 2009, 2010, when we were talking in the framework of the P5 plus one um, about a nuclear agreement, um, I was very pessimistic. I, 
my prediction was that this nuclear issue was just too difficult and that we ought to look at other, th at other things and other ways of engage. Uh, uh, if, we, if we were interested in engaging with the Islamic Republic, there were other possibilities, but the nuclear issue was, was, was too difficult. Well, it turned out I was wrong about that. And we were eventually, we were, we were able to do so. What happened um, again, I think, I think the change of administration in Iran was, was important. Um, I mean, standard wisdom in negotiation is uh, you separate the person from the problem. In other words, the person, the personalities, a person shouldn't matter. Uh, but sometimes they do. Um, and we had reached a situation in which President Ahmadinejad uh, had become toxic in Washington, or I should I should say radioactive in Washington. <laughs> uh, and any. Anything he said, whether he whether it made sense or whether it was nonsense, uh, whether it was nonsense, uh, no one was listening. People had simply stopped listening to him, and because of some of his because of his statements on other issues, as for example about Israel and about the, his some of his Holocaust denial statements and some some other things that he said that that he said, uh, you know, and he was saying this at the same time that in various meetings and in one large meeting that I, I went to in New York, you know, he said, we really should have a better, you know, we in the U.S. should have a better, better relationship. Uh, well, but at that point, nobody was listening. Uh, and that certainly makes things, made things very difficult. There were some, uh, there were some technical issues on the U.S. side, a willingness to make certain concessions over, um, um, over enrichment. Um, there was just a change. There was a change in the mechanics uh, of the talks between the P5 plus one and the Iranians. Just very simple thing, like because the most the people on the Iranian side were uh, were fluent in English, and many were U.S. educated. Were were U.S. educated? Uh, they said, "Look, let's do the whole. Let's do the whole thing in English." And what that that immediately opened up possibilities that hadn't exist because when you have to wait for it, you have to wait for interpreting, you have to go back and forth. First of all, it doubles the amount of time you need, but also encourages people to take the maximalist positions. And now you have a possibility of back and forth. And according to people I know who were in those, uh, in those negotiations, just that one simple step had a great effect in opening up possibilities that hadn't existed before. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting, I think, that you're mentioning, because looking from the outside and also as non-diplomats or non-negotiators, um, sometimes you overlook the importance of something that might look or sound so trivial, like language, but then essentially it is the foundation for for talks or for negotiations that, that the two sides are conducting. And we know there are few American diplomats, yourself being one of them who are fluent in both languages, Farsi included. I want to talk about that later in our conversation. But it's it's very interesting that you uh, mentioned these seemingly trivial points that then essentially become very important uh, turning points in, in changing events. I want to go back to your book, This Ghosts of History. You mentioned 
you basically have bring up 14 ideas or, or suggestions for U.S. negotiations with Iran. You also discuss four cases that um, could be of, of interest or, or educational, basically, for moving forward. Talk about these ideas briefly. We don't have to go over all 14 of them, but talk about the gist of what you think these suggestions are and can work for any, anyone trying to negotiate with Iran. In the interest of full disclosure, I mean, I was trained as a historian, and I, I thought I was actually going to be an academic uh, uh, teaching and studying history, but fate and life had other ideas and uh, had other ideas. Uh, but I looked at the, I looked at the, the, the case studies and the interesting thing in the case studies is, for example, the history is not one of unbroken hostilities. I mean, even if we, if we go back to uh, oil nationalization crisis of 1951, 52, and 53, um, we see that um, the U.S. position was was actually at the beginning was quite balanced, and President Truman in particular uh, wanted to work with Mossadegh and with the nationalist government to reach some kind of res- uh, reach some kind of resolution. There's, it's not a completely black and white picture. And a lot of these other issues are not completely black and white pictures. In other words, there are there are you you see in them interesting possibilities and things that well you know it didn't have to go uh, the way that it did. And very often, I mean, you know, decisions are taken uh, for reasons that are unclear, reasons that are not thought out. The, they're taken on impulse and. What people are not thinking about is what are the what are the long term effects of this thing and how is this going to affect ordinary people? For example, when again going back to President Carter's decision in seventy nine uh, uh, to to admit the Shah, the Department of State, Secretary of State had said uh, this in our embassy. We had said if you do this, we are we are finished. Uh, that's it. That's it for us. Well, they they did it. They did it anyway. So, uh, you know, you have, uh, uh, I think looking, you know, history doesn't solve all of the problems, but, uh, you know, but if you're ignorant of it and you don't realize, uh, you know, what had happened in the past and what are, how are people going to look at a certain, uh, a, cer- a certain action or certain wor- uh, um, or certain words, you're really, gr- you're really groping around in the dark. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to talk about that era a little bit, but everyone knows about the actual time of the hostage crisis, especially Americans who are following it on a on a daily or nightly basis. But I want you to talk about the time that led to that. You've now talked about admitting the Shah into the U.S., but you also lived and worked in Iran in the pre-revolution era, and basically you witnessed the buildup to that event. Talk about what went on. Having been there, did you even see this revolution coming? Was that the feeling that you were getting um, from the country and events that basically subsequently followed. To answer very briefly, Nagar, uh, did I predict uh, the revolution of 78, 79? I did not. But then I, 
I don't think anybody did. I mean, there are people who have come along and said, said yes, I, I predicted it, I, I predicted it, but I think most of them are just, uh, uh, it's not true. Uh, very few people <laughs> predicted it. I mean, if you looked at Iran in 1977, um, it things were pretty good. I mean, sure, there were problems, but things, you know, the, the, the foreign policy, there were very, had, it really didn't have very many enemies, didn't have any enemies. Uh, oil production was, uh, was high, income was good. Uh, their education system, the infrastructure, the economy was moving. And it, you know, there were, there were problems, there were little fits and starts and there were recessions, but uh, in general, things looked good. Uh, uh, things looked good. Yes, there was dissatisfaction. There was dissent. Uh, there was certainly no semblance of democracy or, or free speech. I mean, the problems were there. It wasn't hard to see when I lived there in the in the sixties and early seven uh, early seventies. Uh, you know, there was a a lot of unease. I mean, there were people who said, you know, it really should be better than this. You know, or it should. You know, there shouldn't be so much corruption. Or why do we, why do we need a a dictatorship? Or you know, we could be a better system. We could have a better system. Uh, but it wasn't focused um, on revolution. That kind of you know, you can't say okay because some people are unhappy or people are uh, dissatisfied about this or that. Uh, this is going to lead to a revolution. Uh, what? really changed things in my mind was the um, the oil shocks in the early 70s, in 72, 73, when the price of oil you know, quadrupled overnight. There was this huge deluge of cash uh, that came into not just Iran, but most of the many of most of the oil producing, crude oil producing countries. Uh, and the societies, something happens. The society seemed to lose its uh, lose its moorings, and things just got out of control. the The inequalities of uh, the inequalities became much worse, uh, and they became much more visible. You know, for most people, um, a lot of I mean, you could see this. Life really didn't get any better. I mean, they had more money in their pockets, but the traffic was worse. The pollution was worse. There were shortages. There were there were power cuts. Um, all of that you could see, uh, and there was, as I said, there was a sense of unease. Did I or others say that's going to lead to um, an Islamic, revo Islamic revolution and overthrowing the Shah? No. And you, you talk about, it's interesting that you talk about all of these problems, and we know the Islamic Republic has had very difficult years or crises, basically, the Iranian people have had under the Islamic Republic. And there are a group of opposition or at least part of the exiles who have been talking about regime change or the imminent collapse of the Islamic Republic the past four decades. And at some point, we have seen Washington even pursue that either officially or unofficially as policy towards our own policy of regime change, at least, for example, in the previous administration, we know someone like Mike Pompeo has never been trying to hide uh, how he feels towards Iran or the policy of the U.S. How successful do you think that policy can be basically the U.S. trying to pursue or push for regime change in Iran. Uh, at best, it would be a complete failure, and uh, these efforts would amount to nothing. Um, at worst, you might have a change 
Uh, and that change uh, isn't necessarily for the better. Uh, I mean, we all we certainly should have should have learned that lesson from what happened after 1979, when many people hoped for something better. I thought, oh, now we can, you know, we can get rid of the shop and we can continue our nice uh, middle class life, but without the corruption uh, and the mismanagement that was so prevalent under the monarchy. Well, that was not going to be. That simply was not going to happen. Uh, I mean, I can see groups. Uh, I can see some of these. Some of these exile groups are just, uh, you know, they seem to spend a lot of time fighting with each other or pretending that they have more support in Iran uh, than they do. Um, some of them um, are quite scary. I mean, some of them uh, remind me of of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. In Cambodia, uh, you know, program seems to be mass murder. Um, some of them remind me of, uh, of the cult of uh, Jonestown and the cult of mass suicide and hero worship. Of course, we in the United States recently have had been having our own experience with cult leaders. Uh, and so I think we know pretty well uh, where that can lead. Mm -hmm. And um, I also want to talk about uh current prisoners, the dual national prisoners in Iran. We are we know there are a number of Americans or Iranian Americans, Siamak um, Namazi, I believe he's the longest held in prison. He's an Iranian American. His father is on furlough now. And Murat Tahbaz, another Iranian American and also British citizen, uh, an environmentalist conservationist uh, who is in prison in Iran. How do you think this issue can be resolved. It's something that when you were in the administration, you were dealing with. At some point, you were a hostage yourself at the embassy in Tehran. And uh, we've seen some success stories of basically prisoner swaps or, you know, both sides coming to some form of agreement to releasing this president, this uh, prisoners. But what should the administration do to um, get these Americans or dual nationals um, out of Iran? Uh, no, this is really hard. I mean, this 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 whole thing is really is just appalling. It's it seems to be pretty clear that these are either uh, demands for uh, for ransom. People have they just have to people have to either buy their way out, pay their way out. Or their demands, uh, you know, demands for some kind of prisoner swap, and this kind of policy. I think, you know, I'm not a position to advise the Islamic Republic, but uh, it seems incredibly self-destructive. And I, I don't know what the Islamic Republic accomplishes uh, by throwing dual nationals, uh, you know, researchers, someone who is uh, researching the the 19th century, uh, for example, throwing people like that in jail. I don't know what they what they accomplish. As I said, I think it's a little bit like uh, Ahmed, some of Ahmadinejad's rhetoric. It's self it's self destructive, um, but we've seen forty years of self destructive policies. So maybe we shouldn't be so uh, shouldn't be so surprised. What can the administration do? We can keep talking. I mean, we have to keep talking, and we have to make sure that the other side listening, be chest beating, denunciation accusation. You know, we've been doing that for 40 years uh, and it really hasn't accomplished very much. The problem is both sides now are so accustomed to that 
Uh, they know how to react. Uh, and also they probably don't know how to do anything else. So yes, we should be, we should be keep after this. This should be on the agenda of every meeting and contact. But if you are saying that you want to strangle uh, the Islamic Republic, or if your actions show that you want your you want to strangle the Islamic Republic, or all of you do is uh, is de- is denounce it, then people are not going to listen. To, who's going to listen to you, and who's going to believe you when you try something else? Mm-hmm. And. I want to also mention uh, or want you to tell a little story that there's even video and audio available of. We're going to hear a little bit of that later. But I want you to tell the story of the time when you were a hostage in Iran, one of the hostages, and you met with now current Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, and there was a little exchange between you, the taruf, and how you basically mastered your knowledge of Persian culture and tried to also use that as a negotiation tactic. Tell us that story of the, that that uh, day and that event and what led to that. And then um, we'll later hear a little bit of that Farsi audio exchange. But I want you to tell the story of that day. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. When that, that happened in um, April of 1980, so we would have been in captivity for oh, just over for, for over six months. So it was obvious that uh, whatever was going to happen was not going to happen fa- fast. We were probably not going anywhere. Uh, he came, when he came to visit us, uh, it was the same day that two representatives from the International, uh, International Committee of the Red Cross, the Swiss organization, had come to visit us. And I suppose the, the, uh, the authority said, well, if, these interna- if the Swiss can visit, then we should, vi- we should visit and show the world how, nice, how nicely we are treating these people. Um, why they chose uh, Ali Khamenei, I don't know. At the time, um, he was a, had a senior position. He was, I think, Friday prayer leader of Tehran, and he was uh, representative in the Supreme Defense Council. I mean, a senior figure, not the most senior, but quite senior. Anyway, he came to see he came to see us, um, and there were really two things two things I think going through my mind. One was. Uh, you know, I never wanted to show that I had abandoned the values and the ideals of my profession, which was diplomacy, that the uh, Iranian side had acted outrageously and they had acted disgracefully by what they had done. But I was not going to play their game. So I was not going to berate him or denounce him. I mean, it was pretty tempting, tempting to do so. Uh, but mm-hmm. I was going to keep my professionalism. The other thing I was going to do, which I did, was to treat him as a guest in my space because he was coming into my space. And uh, as as you well know, Nagar, uh, for Iranians, a a host has certain responsibilities toward a guest. Mm -hmm. And a guest has, uh, has certain responsibilities as well. There are certain things you mm-hmm. must do. There are certain things you must uh, you must say. Um, so when he came in, I said, "Welcome. Please sit down. I'm sorry I don't have anything to offer you because, of course, you always offer your guests something." Yeah, essentially they were your host, and 
you know, you were the you were the the forced guest, but then in this episode, you sort of reversed the role. And then, as you're telling the story, I just wanted to make that note to to our audience of how the situation is. But then, uh, let's hear the rest of it. Well, then, but the message was it it went beyond that, which was, uh, sir, let me show to you that I know how in your culture a guest should be treated. And I am treating you as you expect to be treated and as you, sh- as, as you should be treated. What these people have done is an absolute violation of that. I know how to treat a guest, but you do not. Uh, you have mistreated a guest. And mistreating a guest for whose safety you are responsible is probably the greatest cultural mistakes, missteps than any Iranian could do. I mean, Iranians are, you know, you know, Nagar, Iranians are like us. I mean, they will do, they will do great things. They will do terrible things. Um, but one thing I had, I had never seen anyone do is to mistreat a guest. Uh, and that's what they were doing. And I wanted to show him, no, sir, this is how a guest should be treated. And mistreating a guest is a violation of every principle, not just religious law, but of traditional law, of, of traditional law and of your own culture. And I, I use the word uh, tarof, which is this sort of short uh, shorthand for um, the rules of personal interaction and courtesy. And I said, you see when it is misused, what could happen? And the, I suppose what, what I was trying to do, uh, and I think you have a nice expression for this in Persian, you say, uh, uh, you, I was, you cut off someone's head with cotton, never breaking courtesy, never breaking politeness, never abusing, uh, abusing someone, but to convey the message that what you have done, sir, is disgraceful. Mm-hmm. And so can you, do you remember the exchange, what he told you and what you said, because it's said in Persian, but can you explain what you said in the exchange between you and English? <sighs> it's, it's been such a while. I mean, the, the thing was that when it happened, uh, it was shown, I'm told it was shown on uh, Persian television that night. And later yeah, on, they a lot came of with cameras. That, that they came with cameras. That's why that, there's there's video of that available. Exactly. Yeah, and 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 then you know, and then thirty years later, it came out on all places on on Khamenei's own website. But you know, he he said, "Do you have any problems?" And I, you know, I think he meant you know physical. And I said, "said no, on that, uh, we just have to do adjust to what it is uh, to tolerate the conditions." Uh, but I know Iranians like guests and Iranians are very hospitable, uh, but holding someone against his will for six months is definitely overdoing the, uh, overdoing the hospitality, overdoing the tarof. And I said, uh, too much tarof becomes annoying after a while. And I know you don't want, you and Iranians don't like their guests to leave, but holding someone against his will for six months uh, goes far, <coughs> far beyond the bounds. Mm-hmm. 
منم میگم منم هی میگم بس میگم نه آقا بیشتر بمونی من میگم بس نگم میگم زوده بیشتر بیشتر بمونی این تاروفی زی این تاروفی زیادی بعضی موقع آدم یکم ناراحت میشه معلول میشه یه خورده البته اینا هیچ دلشون نمیخواد شما بمونید اینجا برعکس میگه که من اطلاع دارم هم بچه ها و هم همه ملت ایران چون این بچه ها هم خودشون نیستن اینا در حقیقت یه نموداری از احساسات مردمه این دلشون نمیخواد شما اینجا باشید برعکس دلشون میخواد که هرچی زودتر شما برید منطقه خب این کلیدش دست اینها نیست دست ما هم نیست دست اون کسا نیست که حاضر نیستن به خواسته به حق یک ملت جواب بدن Going back again to your personal experience, I want to talk about your life a little bit. You're married to an Iranian. You're very well-versed in the culture. You've studied Iranian culture. You speak Persian very fluently. You know Persian poetry. And you were uh, a Peace Corps volunteer also in Iran before you became a diplomat. You were teaching English at some point. Talk about your experience besides the politics. Your Um, exchange with uh, an immersion, I would say, in the Iranian culture in language over the past however many decades. Uh, can I say 60 years? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, how about that? No, I was thinking about it. The first time, the first time I went to Iran, I was a, I was an undergraduate university, undergraduate, um, and I was thinking about this. It was 1962, um, and uh, John Kennedy was president of the United States. Ali Amini was prime minister of Iran. I mean, think about that for a while, for wow. for a minute. Uh, talk about you know names from ancient history. I mean, it doesn't go back for, as far as you know Fat Ali Shah and Abraham Lincoln, but but almost to that extent, <laughs> almost almost <laughs> to that extent, and and most of that time, Nagar. Um, that 60 years, the, the involvement was not political. Uh, I mean, that was particularly jarring and that was particularly uh, difficult. Uh, but I, I, my contact has been as a, uh, as, a, as a student, as a teacher, uh, you know, as a tourist, um, and probably most important, and you mentioned this, as a, uh, a spouse, Um, a son-in-law, uh, a brother-in-law, uh, as a parent to uh, Iranian-American children and grandchildren, uh, grandchildren on the personal side, that's, that's been much more important and, and, and much more lasting than the politics. Exactly. On that note, John, it's been a very interesting conversation. We can go on forever. You have so much knowledge and so much insight and so many interesting stories. But um, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast on this very, again, in this very interesting episode of U.S.-Iran relations. Thank you. Thank you, Nagar. And uh, I, there, there is always something, uh, there's always something to talk about on this subject, isn't there? There definitely is, definitely is. That was John Limbert, a former American diplomat and the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Iran. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast apps and rate and review the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.